Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Hey, what's up, my friends? Dude, thanks for hanging out today, man. Good to be with you. Now, sometimes it's just coincidence, right? Like, the story told on This American Life, true story. There's this guy at the mall doing surveys. And as part of doing this job, he has to ask people for their phone number. And it's obvious that the guy he's surveying starts to make up a number. He says something like 933-456, etc. And then when he ended the phone number, the guy given the survey said, no, sir, I'm sorry, that's not your phone number. And the guy gets all defensive and he says, what do you mean that's not my phone number? And the guy says, because that's my phone number. <laughs> the phone number you just made up is actually my phone number. That's just coincidence. But sometimes it feels more like providence. Like the time a college student has her car break down in rush hour on a busy highway and the one person who just happens to stop who comes to her rescue is her dad who lives four hours away and just happens to be there. Now, the book of Esther asks this question. Is it a coincidence or is there something bigger at work here? The book of Esther starts about 100 years after Babylonian captivity. Now, by this point, we know that uh, some Jews have moved back to Israel and, and are starting to rebuild the temple and the walls and reform and all of that. But the vast majority of Jews have stayed behind in the expansive empire of Babylon and now Persia and have made a new life for themselves. Now, there are a couple strange things about the book of Esther. Number one is that God is never mentioned in this book. How do we have a book of scripture that never talks about God? Number two, the heroes of the book break the commands of the law, of the law of Moses, of the Torah, all over the place. Like this book is full of a lot of sex, drinking alcohol, dietary law violations all over the place. So what do we make of a book of scripture that doesn't talk about God and its heroes don't follow the law very well? Well, honestly, it's part of the genius of this book. It is purposefully not heavy-handed. The authors don't tell you what to think. They make no claims. There's no like, thus saith the Lord, thus we see, none of that. Even though we sometimes make claims for Esther or Mordecai that they're some sort of super faithful, perfect people, they never make those claims. Instead, the author of the stories just tell the story and say, what do you think? Is it a coincidence? And this idea of coincidence um, really gets set up in chapter 3, verse 7. There you have the king, a guy named Asuerus. Uh, I'm going to say that name so wrong in so many different ways today. My apologies. So the king and his buddy, a guy named Haman, are throwing dice. And they're throwing dice to pick a day, and we'll get to that part of the story. But it's this subtle, really low-key way for the authors to say, is it just a coincidence or is it something more? Is Is this life all just chance? Or is there something more to it? So I'm going to approach this story much like they approach the story. I'm going to tell it to you and you tell me. Is it just a coincidence? So like I said before, our story starts with a king, uh, a king over there in Persia. 
And again, his name is Ahasuerces. I think I just said that with a Mexican accent, so I'm sorry. Ahasuerces. He's throwing a party for all his friends to show off how rich he was. And, and he's just getting plastered. So yeah, there, there we go. Right from the start, our main, one of our main characters is a rich, drunk, gambling king. And anyway, one day of this party, he's super wasted. And he tells his friends, you should see my wife. She's so hot. I mean, so hot, you wouldn't believe. Here, I'll call her and you can all see. So he sends a servant to bring Vashti, the queen, before him to shew the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But she is in no mood to do a catwalk turn for a bunch of drunks, so Vashti refused. Once the guys at the party sober up, Ahasuerus and his buddies are still bugged about the fact that she wouldn't come, so they get together and they draft two royal decrees. Decree number one is that every man should bear rule in his own house. The, the man is the boss of the house. And number two is that Vashti can come no more between, before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her loyal, royal estate to another that is better than she. Basically, she loses her position as queen and her inheritance. So to replace Vashti, the king decides to hold a beauty pageant, basically, to find his new wife. And here, a pretty orphaned Jewish girl named Hadassah decides to enter the contest. Because who knows? What if I rewrite my stars? Oh, that was bad. That was way bad. <laughs> I don't know. She actually sings Greatest Showman's show tunes right there. But she is thinking, if I can just win this beauty pageant. <laughs> Dude, just come to karaoke at my house. It'll be madness. Anyways. Um, she decides to try out because who knows, right? It kind of sounds like a Hallmark movie up to this point, doesn't it? So she lives with her uncle because orphan, right? And her uncle Mordecai tells her, girl, if you're going to have any chance to win this contest, they cannot know that you are a Jew. So they change her Jewish name to the safer Esther and send her on her way. And again, the, this confusing part of these supposedly super righteous people covering up their true identity as the people of God, trying to win a beauty contest, it all seems rather shallow. So how are these people in the scriptures? Anyway, she vamps her way through Persia's next top model, and King Ahasuerus is duly impressed, and Hadassah slash Esther becomes a concubine which honestly back in the day beats the crap out of gleaning in the fields, and so she's got her, her way set. Meanwhile, as she is um, strutting down the runway and getting good makeup tips, her uncle Mordecai is walking past the castle gate one day, and he overhears two of the king's guards, a guy named Bikthan and Teresh, plotting to assassinate the king. So Mordecai goes to Esther, who in turn tells the king. Um, Esther gives full credit to Mordecai for the information. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials, Bigthan and Teresh, are impaled upon poles. Yowza. They are not messing around in the ancient world. And all of this stuff is recorded in the chronicles of King Ahasuerus of Persia. Is that just a coincidence? It's just a coincidence, right? Hmm. 
Now, after all of this goes down, right, taking care of the these usurpers, um, Esther taking her place in the um, in the kingdom. Ahasuerus has a friend named Haman, and um, he promotes Haman up to a new position of authority. And everybody bows down and reverences Haman for his new spot. But as he's walking down the street, Mordecai refuses to bow um, because uh, he will worship no man but God, right? It doesn't say that, but Mordecai, well, that's an assumption on my part now, isn't it? Mordecai might not just bow because he doesn't like Haman. It doesn't really say here in the scripture, right? Um, so now, obviously, self-centered Haman is enraged by this lack of deference. Uh, we can assume Mordecai's behavior is because he's to have no other gods before me. You're going to see this sort of behavior later in other places in the Old Testament and later on with the Jews in Jerusalem under the time of Roman rule. Like they, they riot once when the, the Romans bring in shields with eagles painted on them because this is a graven image. So this sort of behavior is not just limited to Mordecai, but is rather part of Jewish culture, it seems, at the time. So because of this, Haman seeks to destroy not only Mordecai, but destroy all of the Jews because they don't bow to him and give him the proper reverence he deserves. So Haman goes to King Ahasuerus and tells him there's this ethnic group in his empire. And remember, his, his empire is huge. And he describes the Jews like this. He says, they're an ethnic group that keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people. They do not obey the king's laws to bow to me. And it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So I'm proposing we officially destroy this group and grease the wills of and to grease the wills of justice along he tells the king that he will pay 10,000 talents of s- silver if he will eradicate this ethnic group and this seems like sound counsel to Ahasuerus so he gives Haman his signet ring or his sealing power to carry out the deed as if from his own voice so the official proclamation orders the Persians to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. So what day did choose? I don't know. So Ahasuerus and Haman roll the dice to choose a day. Because it's all just chance, right? It's just coincidence. And the dice falls upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And then they send out riders with uh, the orders to carry out this genocide to all corners of the kingdom where the Jews have been distributed. Now, as you can imagine, when the Jews find out about this command, they are distraught. In every provenance, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in the sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai is one of those individuals. He, he is in mourning in front of the palace gates. Esther seems to be pretty insulated from all of this and unaware of this genocidal command. Um, but she hears from her servants that Mordecai is outside of the palace, clearly in mourning, in rough clothing, covered in filthy ashes. So she sends him out clean clothes. He refuses the clean clothes. So she sends another person to ask him what is going on. 
And Mordecai told the servant everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of Jews. He also gave uh, Esther's servant a copy of the text for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told the servant to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with the king for her people. But Esther replies, Mordecai, it's not that simple. See, we, we talk about Esther as being the one and only queen, but the text makes it pretty clear that she's actually a sub-queen, a concubine. And, and she hasn't seen the king in the past 30 days, And if she approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has one law that those who approach him be put to death unless he accepts their presence by raising the golden scepter and spares their life. Mordecai replies to Esther's concern saying, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise for another place, but you and your family will perish. That's an interesting statement. He's like, don't think that, that, that God won't stop it. He'll find another way, but I'll die. But then he says, but who knows? Who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? See, Mordecai clearly doesn't think that it's just random chance or coincidence that she's in this position right now. So Esther, convinced by his argument, scared, terrified, but willing to do as he asks, asks Mordecai and the Jews of the city to pray for her. And she, she decides to go for it, not without resignation. She says, so I will go unto the king, And if I perish, I perish. So after three days of fasting and prayer, Esther makes sure she is looking shiny and every bit of queen, and she walks into the inner court. And when the king saw Esther, looking fine, he holds out the golden scepter, and Esther approaches and curtsies. Then the king says to her, What can I do for you, Esther? What is your your request? But she doesn't ask what Mordecai wants her to ask right now. Instead, she invites the king to a dinner party, which has to be the most society girl way I have ever heard of of solving a problem. So that night, King Ahasuerus comes to dinner. And Esther has also asked that Haman be invited. So both Ahasuerus and Haman are there at the dinner. And they're drinking wine and the king is like, this can't be all you wanted for sure. What do you really want, Esther? And she says, what I really want is for you and Haman to come back to another dinner party tomorrow. So he says, okay. But Haman leaves the party just amped. He just got some one-on-one time with the king and one of the king's favored wives. And so he is just like riding high right here. She has invited him to two different dinner parties with the king. And so he leaves the castle in such a good mood, which quickly sours when he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai stood not up for him, nor even moves for Haman. And Haman is just like, this guy is the worst. It's just coincidence though, right? Random chance. 
So Mordecai, excuse me, Haman goes home and he calls together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he boasts to them about how awesome he is and all the ways the king has honored him. And he says, that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But then he says, but this gives me no satisfaction as long as that Jew Mordecai is sitting at the gates and won't reverence me. So his wife, Zeresh, says, dude, here's what you do. Have a pole set up reaching the height of 50 cubits. And since you're in such good favor with the king, ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled upon it. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. She's like, basically, it's the recipe for the perfect day. Your enemy gets impaled. You get more favor with the king. La-da-da. Well, that night, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. So he has one of his assistants read to him from the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Persia, like a soothing bedtime story on the slumber app. And as the guy is reading, they come to the part where Mordecai had stopped the assassination attempt of the king by the two guards. Just a coincidence, right? And Ahasuerus is like, what honor and dignity hath been done for Mordecai for this? Did, did we give Mordecai anything for saving my life? And the king, king's servant is like, uh, we haven't done anything. So the next morning, the king is trying to think of the right way to honor Mordecai. So he, he asks his servants, what noblemen are in the court? And he's like, I want to brainstorm a proper reward with these guys. And they reply, Naaman just came to the outer court of the palace to speak with the king. Well, he's coming to speak with the king about impaling Mordecai on a pole. But it just seems like Haman has randomly showed up, right? Just coincidence. So Haman comes in to the king and the king says, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Like, what should I do for a guy that I just want to help out? And, and Haman is like, dude, he's obviously talking about me. Um, and so he thinks of the reward he wants. And so Haman tells the king, he says, let um, the guy be brought forward and let royal apparel be brought, like your own clothing, and dress him up in your own rich clothes, and then put him on your own horse, let the royal crown be set upon his head, and parade him through the street, and proclaim before him that everybody should delight and honor and love them. And the king is like, dude, that is the perfect way to reward this guy. He says, make haste, take the apparel, take the horse, and do it even to Mordecai the Jew. Oh, he had come to the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai. And instead, somehow he has talked the king into having a parade in Mordecai's honor. If there has ever been anybody who, like, it tastes like ashes right there, it is him in this moment. But he can't deny it now. So, so Haman leads, uh, goes to Mordecai, dresses him in royal apparel, mounts him on the horse, and leads him through the city, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Oh, dang. Just coincidence, right?
Well, Haman goes home after the parade, just steaming and tells his wife, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Um, But while he's venting to his wife, the king's chamberlain comes to Haman and tells him it's time for that other banquet that Esther had prepared. And he's like, oh yeah, shoot. And he goes. So the king and Haman come in and sit down with Esther, the queen. And Ahasuerus says, for real, Esther, what do you want? Then Queen Esther answers, answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my only petition. And the king's like, grant you your life? What are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? And she says, I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And Ahasuerus says, Who is he? Where is he? Who's the guy that dares to try and kill my wife? And Esther says, an adversary, an enemy. It's this vile Haman sitting before you. Oh, if ever there was a mic drop moment, it's right there. And the king is livid. He's so mad he doesn't even say anything. He just gets up and storms out of the room so heated. And Haman is like, oh, crap, 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 I'm dead. So he goes to beg for his life before Esther. And he throws himself down on her couch because they, they would eat kind of reclined here. Um, and he throws himself down. And as he throws himself down on her couch, Ahasuerus walks back into the room. And he's like, Haman is trying to molest the queen while she is with me in the house. And so his guards grab Haman and immediately put a head, hood over his head. <laughs> and the king is like, what do I do with him? And so one of the king's servants is like, well, Haman has an impaling pole, sharpened, planted in the ground, 50 cubits high. And the king says, go impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on top of the pole he had set up for Mordecai. It's just a coincidence, right? Now, after Haman's execution, Mordecai has an audience with the king and asks the king to reverse his order to execute all Jews on the 13th of Adair. But the king tells him that he can't reverse an official decree, but he gives Mordecai his signet and he says, if you can figure out a way out of this, go for it. So Mordecai thinks about it really hard and then the solution he comes out with is to send out a decree in the name of the king that allows the Jews to defend themselves on the 13 of Adair if someone comes for them with no repercussions at all. So when Adair 13th arrives, the Jews gather themselves together. Uh, so they're in one body, they can protect one another. Um, and all of the rulers of the providences and the lieutenants and deputies and officers of the king help the Jews because Mordecai has, is a Jew and he's now in favor of the king. And so the Jews, instead of waiting for them to come attack them, they go and smite all their enemies. And after this miraculous rescue, all of the Jews celebrate the next day, which is the 14th of Adair, and made it a, a day of feasting and gladness. And they call their holiday Purim after the name Pur. Now, that means nothing to you, but Pur, P-U-R, is dice. And you remember how the cast dice chose the day of death and then things just worked out? 
dice, chance. Is it just chance? So what do we make of this book? This is not a story of a scripture superhero. Stop. This is a story about real people living in a real messy world, trusting God. But it's such a clever book because it's so much more like what we have experienced. Like God usually doesn't come down in a lightning bolt like it's hundreds of years rare. Instead, God works through a scared young woman who just isn't sure she's doing the right thing, but she's determined. It's kind of like when I took my daughter cliff jumping in Lake Powell and she got to the top and she's like, I don't want to do this. I'm like, you don't have to do it. And then she just launches herself screaming off the top and had fun. And I was so proud of her. What do you think about this story though? Is it a coincidence or could it be that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Other Razban talks about this concept this way. He says, What should you be looking for in your own life? What are God's miracles that remind you that he is close, saying, I'm right here? Think of those times, some daily when the the Lord has acted in your life and then acted again. Some months ago, our granddaughter joined a youth group to tour several church history sites. The final, uh, final itinerary noted that she would be passing through the very area where her missionary brother, our grandson, was serving. Our granddaughter had no intention of seeing her brother on his mission. However, as the bus entered the town where her brother was serving, two missionaries could be seen walking down the street. One of the missionaries was her brother. Anticipation filled the bus as the youth asked the bus driver to pull over so she could greet her brother. In less than one minute, after tears and sweet words, her brother was back on his way to fulfill his missionary duties. We later learned that her brother had been on that street for less than five minutes, walking from an appointment to his car. Heavenly Father can put us in situations with specific intent in mind. He has done so in my life. He is doing so in yours. The Lord loves to be with us. It is no coincidence that when you are feeling his spirit and acting on first promptings that you feel him, As he promised, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left. And my spirit shall be with you, shall be in your hearts. And my angels round about you to bear you up. Or what about how Michael Ringwood tells it? He says, my new friend Paul testifies of this truth. Paul grew up in a home that was sometimes abusive and always intolerant of religion. While attending school on a military base in Germany, he noticed two sisters who seemed to have a spiritual light. Asking why they were different brought the answer that they belonged to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Soon, Paul began meeting with missionaries and was invited to church. The next Sunday, as he got off the bus, he noticed two men dressed in white shirts and ties and asked them if they were elders of the church. They answered yes, so Paul followed them. During the service, a preacher pointed to the people in the congregation and invited them to testify. At the end of each testimony, a drummer gave a drum salute and the congregation called out, Amen. When the preacher pointed to Paul, he stood up and said, I know Joseph Smith was a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true. But there was no drum salute or amens. Paul eventually realized he'd gone to the wrong church. 
Soon Paul found his way to the right church and was baptized. On the day of Paul's baptism, a member he didn't know told him, You saved my life. A few weeks earlier, this man had decided to look for another church and attended a service with drums and amens. And when the man heard Paul bear his testimony of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, he realized that God knew him, recognized his struggles, and had a plan for him. For both Paul and the man, it fell on a day indeed. We too know that Heavenly Father has a personal plan of happiness for each of us. Because God sent his beloved Son for us, the miracles we need will fall on the very day necessary for his plan to be fulfilled, end quote. It's just coincidence, right? Or could it be that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.